Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The word of the Lord. A couple weeks after Pentecost, which we talked about last week, the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem, and they're regularly worshiping together and regularly going to the temple to praise God. Jesus has risen. The good news has happened. He is the Savior and Lord. One day, Peter and John, two of the closest disciples, are walking to the temple, and on the gate outside of the temple was a lame man, a beggar, whose feet didn't work in some way. He's out there begging. Peter and John stop, and they say, look at us. He thinks this means give us some, he's going to give them something. And they say, they say, silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they helped him up. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. There's a little song from uh, 30 or 40 years ago. The man goes around screaming, so excited. He had not been able to walk for, we're not sure how long. He'd spent his life begging. In the name of Jesus, they, they heal him. The crowds of people at the temple that day, and there's always crowds of people, begin to see him leaping and praising God, and they think, we've seen this guy day in and day out, outside the gate, feet not working, begging. What's happening? So Peter gets up and begins to speak and says, the reason why he can walk is because of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we healed him. And then he goes on to talk about who Jesus is. Jesus is the one that all of you, all of us, crucified, but God has raised him from the dead. He's the one that was talked about in Moses and in the prophets, and he's here, risen. The temple authorities don't like this. There's a lot of commotion. They're causing a bunch of stir. This random guy is up there preaching, so they arrest Peter and John, throw them in the prison for the temple. The next day, they have a trial, and they ask Peter and John, by what name, in whose power are you doing this? 
why do you think you can do this? And the answer, it's in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, it's pretty bold, and God raised from the dead. And then they go on to say, in verse 12 of chapter four, which we didn't read, there is one name under heaven, one name under heaven, whereby people can be saved. It's Jesus. The religious authorities turn hostile pretty quick. At first it's just commotion, but now it's a threat. And so they bring their threat back to these two apostles. In verse 18 of Acts 4, it says, they charge them, Peter and John, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now we know from a couple of verses later that this charging them was a threat and there was probably a whole bunch of other things that went along with the threat. Now this is not like the threats that your parents do if you're a kid. Those are called empty threats. <laughs> your parents see you on a screen for so long they get angry, they will take that TV, laptop, iPad, phone, throw it out in the street and run over it back and forth. If you do not get off right now, you know that's an empty threat. They're not gonna do it. They don't wanna have to replace that thing. The Jewish authorities here in the temple are making threats. If you do not stop, and they know very well the power that the Jewish authorities had because just a few weeks earlier, they had seen it in Jesus. Jesus had been arrested falsely tried. It didn't matter that the accusations didn't stand up. Court of law was whatever they decided. They had him flogged, his body ripped apart, and then he was crucified. Do you guys want to stop what you're doing, or do you want to replace Jesus on the cross? And of course, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, which we're going to be looking at the next couple months, you see the persecution, these threats being carried out. And it's much like as Jesus had said in Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, you're supposed to go and proclaim the gospel. Well, the book of Acts is also from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. They are dealing with persecution. Everywhere the apostles go, they find themselves uh, arrested, thrown in prison, falsely accused, mobs are giving them trial. Mobs don't ever give good trials. They are beaten, left for dead, executed. When the religious authorities charge them not to speak, these are not empty threats. They know very well what is going to happen to them if they continue. Now why was there such opposition? A guy gets healed and they're just talking about Jesus. What's the big deal? For some reason, everywhere that Jesus is proclaimed, it becomes a big deal. For the Jewish authorities, at the very core level, it was a belief thing, right? This is sort of obvious. There is one God, his name is Yahweh. You don't even mention his name. And you're saying Jesus is God risen from the dead? That is blasphemy. And on top of that, they realized if, if subconsciously, that this Jesus was a threat to them. If Yahweh was not God and the temple was not the way to God and Jesus you had access to just by belief, then their whole system of existence didn't matter anymore. Jesus wasn't just a threat to their belief system, he was a threat to their way of life, to their position of status and power. And he seems to be that sort of threat to every single person who's ever been in power. It wasn't just the Jewish religious authorities, which are what the apostles are dealing with here in Jerusalem. As you see through the rest of Acts, it's also the pagan authorities throughout the Roman Empire. 
But the pagan authorities had different reasons for disliking Jesus and the whole Christian movement. So for the Jews, it was the belief that you're, you're claiming Jesus is God. That's absurd. Pagans, the Roman leaders, said that's fine. If you want to believe Jesus is God, as long as you also worship these other gods. Realize Caesar is Lord. One of many gods. We love it. Add another one in. But they had a real problem with the Christian claim that Jesus is the Lord and God, the only Lord and God. And on top of that, Christianity pushed against the ethics and values of the culture and of the day. Christianity took all people and made them social equals. In a Greco-Roman culture that regularly threw babies out, if they were poor or weak and let them die of exposure, it was Christians in the first centuries who found the babies at the base of mountains, brought them in, fed them, cared for them because they valued life. It was Christians who pushed against the cultural norm of sexual promiscuity, especially for men who had the right to have prostitutes and mistresses, and they said, no, it's actually celibacy, monogamy. God wants your body too. Christianity pushed against the rich being rich for their own good and said, you're supposed to lay it down for the sake of the poor. Ultimately, Christianity had a whole value system that was against the Greco-Roman culture. The Greco-Roman culture valued honor and status. That's what you were after, your place in society. Christianity said the one with the highest place gave it up. It's about humility and not honor and status. And all of this was completely unending the way of thinking in the pagan world. Jesus was and is a threat to every culture, to every capital city, at some critical junctures in its belief system and values. And we see that in the West today, right? Like, you don't have to really go overboard or be a, a doomsayer to realize that we live in a post-Christian culture now. Um, and it is getting, in various places, increasingly anti-Christian. It's harder to kind of say, this is what I believe. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that we've become more and more secular as a, as a culture in the West. So there's a term called the nuns, basically people who self-identify as unaffiliated with any religious system. In the 1980s, in the 1980s, 10% of people self-identified as unaffiliated with any religion. 10 years ago, 15% of people said they were not affiliated with any religious system. Today, it's 25%, one-fourth, and it's increasing. Today, each person is its own authority. I can believe and do what I want. So if Christian teaching contradicts on any issue what I believe, or especially what everyone in the culture knows is right and true, then Christianity must be wrong. And the Christian claim that Jesus is Lord and Savior, the Lord and Savior, is cultural blasphemy. That's the one thing you can't say. Outsiders, people outside the church, have a negative view of the church. 20 years ago, there was a 15% of outsiders viewed the church with negative terms. 10 years ago, it became 40% of outsiders had a negative view of the church. Now, I'm not sure what that number is. But Christianity and the church is largely viewed as hypocritical, judgmental, hateful, the problem. 
It is less popular now to be a Christian than at any time in the past few decades, and the trend is likely to continue here in the West. Cultural Christianity has lost its place in society. And that actually might be a good thing. <laughs> Having a cultural majority and a bunch of nominal Christians is not nearly as effective as being a marginal group with a bunch of small group of radical Christians. Just look at what happens in this first couple centuries. It will cost you to be a disciple. It did them, it will us. But just weeks after the resurrection, the church was filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with joy, and then Jerusalem presents this threat, this hostility. And the question we're asking today is in a hostile city, what is a gospel community to do? Well, the apostles, against uh, the, Peter and John, get released from prison. And the very next thing they do is they return to the disciples gathered probably in the upper room. And they say, hey guys, guess what happened? This guy got healed, we proclaimed the gospel, we got arrested, they threatened us. And then they prayed. And their prayer started off with Sovereign Lord, and then it continued talking, it was a quote out of Psalm 2. It's an interesting quote that they would quote this. They, they say in verse 25 and 26, the prayer says, the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. Kings and rulers rise up against the Lord and against his anointed. And then the prayer goes on to talk about how this is essentially what happened to Jesus. All the leaders conspired against Jesus to bring their vitriol and anger against him. Now, what they don't quote in the prayer, okay, they quote that first part about the prayer and they're identifying the religious leaders, the people going against the Lord and his anointed. The rest of Psalm 2 actually talks about God's wrath being poured out on the, the leaders of the culture. So, the people's rage, the nation's rage, the king's rage, but the Lord will destroy and flatten them all. But the disciples don't pray that. They start there, but they don't go on to pray for judgment on the religious authorities or the city. They don't even pray what I would have prayed. After that, after that happened, my prayer would have been, Lord, deliver us, protect us from suffering and persecution. You know, there's generally two responses to being threatened. It's fight or flight. I think I've mentioned this before, but I kind of 99% of the time I'm going to be in the flight mode. I'm going to flee if there's trouble. Hope somebody is slower than me. And I don't know why when this threat comes, you guys are going to be arrested, beaten, flogged, crucified. I don't know why they didn't say, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't we, instead of being here in Jerusalem, go to Capernaum? In Capernaum, Jesus was really popular. It was about three days' walk from here. We'll probably be safe. There's no internet, no CNN. People will not know what we're even doing. We could be faithful, probably minister to the whole city. Or, why don't we escape? Let's go out into the desert. Like the Dead Sea Scroll community, let's just be our own people. Avoid the problems here in the city of Jerusalem. They're threatening us here. Let's get out. That's logical. But for some reason, they don't do that. Their prayer is for more opportunities to reach more people. Why do they have to be so good? Verse 29 and 30. This is their prayer, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you heal and signs and wonders are done through your name. In verse 29 and 30, to continue to speak your word 
with all boldness while you heal and signs and wonders are done in your name. Their prayer is for boldness and the power to engage and impact this hostile city and its people. Instead of fear or judgment, they're motivated by faith and love. Their concern for the spiritual well-being of the hostile city is greater than their concern for their own physical well-being. How and why can they be so concerned about these people who are threatening them? First, it's the bigness of their God. The first thing is the bigness of their God. Their prayer in verse 24 and 28 is sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. That's how they start. And they say, even as the, the city, even as people were gathered against Jesus, it was to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The whole basis of their prayer is in trust in the sovereignty of God who controls all things, even, even Pontius Pilate and the religious authorities and Judas are being worked to carry out God's purposes. Their prayer for boldness to proclaim the gospel is a direct outflow of their trusting that God is sovereign and can use even their potential suffering and persecution. Their prayer is something like this. If the betrayal, trial, and cross gave way to the resurrection, our salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit, then isn't it possible that God could redeem, resurrect, even use our suffering for a greater good? for the spread of his gospel, that more people might come to know Jesus as the risen Lord. And that's the question I'm constantly asking and I think you should be as well. Is it possible that the decline of Christianity as the cultural majority and the increasing secularness, if you would, the unaffiliated nuns bent of our culture is it possible it's in God's plan? They do not fear because they trust the bigness of God. And secondly, they are driven by the gospel. The gospel will catapult you if you truly believe it. The gospel is inherently others focused. Think about it. The gospel is not God saying, all right, prove yourself, come to me. The gospel is inherently God coming out of his comfort for us, suffering for us, loving us enough to come to us in our brokenness. And the gospel inherently says Jesus' death is for you, but it's not just for you. Many people self-associate as Christian, but the question is, are they following religion or the gospel? Religion has a tendency to pull you inwards. Okay, pulls you inwards. Because it's always trying to say, how am I doing and how can I be a better person? Because in your system, even if you don't think about this consciously, you see the world as a system of how you have to measure up in some way, as a parent, in your morals, in the quality of your life, in the way your kids raise, in the, in the career trajectory that you've had. If you're doing well, if you're financially independent, if you've got your own house, you're good. 
right? There's some way in which we're always measuring ourselves in religion. Even when you do something good altruistically, like charity or volunteering, it's so that you can check off on the box. Yep, did that, did that, I'm good. In religion, we are always comparing ourselves with one another because we have to stack up, and the goal is to have at least enough people beneath us that we're probably gonna be okay. So we're always looking out, but not for others' good, but simply to set myself against them and either feeling superior and self-righteous because, like, I'm better than that guy or feeling inferior and guilty because we're not living up to even our own standards. But the gospel, the gospel drives you outward when you realize how much God has done for you and how much he loves you you don't bother comparing anymore because the fundamental starting point of the gospel is we are all equally sinners. None of us is better than. And we're all saved by grace. It's not a matter of how good you become. And when that gospel pushes deeper in, the love of God grabs hold of you, you actually become desperate as God is for everyone else to know and experience that same love. The depth of the gospel's rootedness in your heart <laughs> is a direct connection to the depth of your love for people who do not know Jesus. The gospel drives those disciples out, out of themselves, with compassion and love, even for a hostile city. And of course, it's not just out to the city that the gospel drives them. The gospel also drives them out of themselves to one another. We get those great verses in verse 32 through 35 of Acts chapter four, which is a repeat of the end of Acts two, where it says the believers were of one heart and one soul. They were not selfish, but had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, but as many of them as as were rich, if there was a need, they sold property or sold goods, laid the money at the disciples' feet, the apostles' feet, to give to those in need. The early Christian church, the kind of community that was developed, was so countercultural to Greco-Roman society. In Greco-Roman society, friendship was built on reciprocity. Basically, you had people over for dinner so that they could then have you over for dinner. Well, we do the same thing, I guess, but... But the idea was to maintain your status. If you were one of the wealthy people in the community, you had other wealthy people over, and then they had you over, and it was kind of a self-congratulatory little group of, well, we take care of each other. Friendship was built on reciprocity. Now, there was also another type of relationship in the Greco-Roman culture. It was patron-client. The wealthy were benefactors for the poor for one of two reasons. They either just gave alms to the really poor in order to look good in the community, or they gave to clients, people who had indentured, in a sense, themselves to these benefactors. And the idea was this, I will provide for you, and you owe me loyalty, service. I will do you this favor. There may come a day, maybe not this day, when I need something from you. And it was assumed that they would do it. The church, as it began, overturned 
all of these social constructs. In Judaism, community was built around blood. You are one of us because you're family and you're one of us because of blood. Christianity overturned the social constructs redrawing family around faith in Christ. And it challenged Greco-Roman assumptions because of the radical generosity of that early church. The wealthy provided for the poor, as we see in this passage, but not expecting something from the poor in return, nor even thinking about, then I'll look good. One commentator summed it up really nicely. He said it's, they were radically valuing people over possessions. They were radically valuing people over possessions. And they were a community that lived by grace. The gospel caused them to say anyone can come in. And in Christ, all are equally one. This is a very uncommon sort of thing. It continues to this day. The church, when rightly oriented, is a gathering of people who have a lot of differences. And you might not even be friends with them if you weren't in the same church or small group. I'm constantly reminded of this when I'm, <laughs> when I'm at a clergy meeting. Um, they, I was at one earlier this week. There's 100, 150 clergy from the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic. And it's the high school test, okay? The high school test is this. Would I have been friends with them in high school? You know this. You could see other people who are friends. You're like, they would never have been friends in high school. And I look around the room and I think, no, I would not have been friends with most of these people in high school. Maybe that one and that one and that one. But here I am. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Three bishops got up to speak with their three wives who had become friends and they talked about their friendship that had been cultivated over the past couple of years. And what was interesting as they spoke, they never mentioned this, but I thought, yeah, they would never have been friends in high school. <laughs> one of them was the cool, funny guy. Another one was the serious, intense guy. Third one was the nerd. They would not have been friends in high school, but here they were talking about their love for each other. Because in Christ, a new family was being formed. That was radical to that culture back then. The early church community was marked by social equity, radical generosity, and grace-filled compassion for one another. In it, the poor and the widow were protected, the sick and the dying were cared for, the outcast and the foreigner found a place to belong. And what they did with each other as a community, they also did with those outside of the church. Emperor Julian, who himself was a pagan, complained about it to the pagan priests. He, write, he wrote this, these Christians not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape. Urgh. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. Historian Rodney Stark cited this as one of the primary reasons Christianity grew in the brutal pagan world of the first couple centuries. He wrote, Christianity grew because Christians constituted an intense community able to generate the invincible obstinacy against paganism, 
and the primary means of its growth was through the united and motivated efforts of the growing numbers of Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives, and neighbors to share the good news. Their intense community brought people in and people wanted that, even back then. Their love for each other was actively missional because it was powerfully attractive. Today, it may be even more the case that there is great missional potential in a true gospel community. Do you know that we have what um, sociologists, doctors are calling a loneliness epidemic in America? In the 1980s, 20% of adults self-identified as lonely. Today, it's 40%. There are 43 million chronically lonely people. In the 1960s, one in eight people lived by themselves, lived alone. Today, it's one in four. Singleness is, is the majority now. 50%, over 50% of American adults are single for various levels of singleness, right? We are transient. How many people? Nobody lives near all of their extended family, and almost nobody lives in the same place for decade after decade. That transience leads to a challenge of developing close friends. A few decades ago, the average adult in America said they had three close friends. Today, the average uh, American adult has fewer than one. And the problem is the 50-90-200 issue. This is a study that came out recently, um, a journal study that said that in order to move from acquaintance to friend, it takes 50 hours of intentional time together. For that friendship to move from friends to good friends takes 90 hours of intentional time together, on average. And to move from good friends to closest, deepest, best friends takes over 200 hours of time together. So let's say that you work in an office space and you get lunch regularly with another person. Let's say that you get lunch every week, once a week, for an hour. It will take a year of once a week just to become friends and not acquaintances. It will take two years before you feel like, eh, this is a good friend of mine. And it will take four or more years before this is an actual close friend. How many of us are doing that regularly? Dr. Vivek Murthy, who was the former U.S. Surgeon General, wrote in the Harvard Business Review, loneliness is a growing health epidemic. We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Today, over 40% of adults in America report feeling lonely, and research suggests the real number may well be higher. I think, I think, there's a place for gospel-driven churches to try to cultivate extended family communities of generosity and grace. I think in the coming decades, it's gonna be one of the primary places of missional connection. As the single, or those far from family, or those just struggling in life, learn how to do life with one another, to not suffer alone, to find friendship and community, a place where you can be known, where belonging precedes belief, because a community authenticates the message of Jesus Christ. We can't live up to this. I'm not sure how to get us there. 
and we're running out of time, so I'm gonna even skip over a few practicals. You wouldn't have liked them anymore. They said, give more money and commit. <laughs> this post-Christian culture may actually become more hostile. We don't need to live in fear or worry, praying for our escape. We know a pretty big God. We believe a fairly amazing gospel. Let the gospel sink deeper into your heart and draw you out of yourself towards one another and then drive us out to all others so that you and I are the kind of people who live for the good of this city and out of love for all of its people. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you did not stay in your peace, in your eternal home, but you entered our pain and our suffering, our brokenness to get us. Take away our fear about the world, about the lives around us, and through your son, Jesus, give us the hope that we too are called to love those as you have loved us. Amen.